Twas the night before Christmas, and murder was afoot. Hello everyone, my name is Gabrielle, and welcome to A Murderous Affair, the podcast where we talk about women in history known for mayhem and murder. This week is a bit of a downer. Our second murderess featured on our Christmas countdown is Michelle Anderson, a family annihilator who murdered six members of her family the night before Christmas along with her boyfriend. Before we get started though, some really, really interesting crime news broke last week. A group of codebreakers decoded this 340 cipher from the Zodiac Killer. And if you guys don't know who that is, the Zodiac Killer was an American serial killer active from the late 60s to early 70s. The killer would send lenders with cryptograms to different medias as a way of bragging about what he'd done and how he was getting away with it. After being unsolved for 51 years, Citizen Codebreakers solved the Z340 message. It's called that because of the amount of characters, that are used in the cryptogram. Now, the Z340 was sent to the San Francisco Chronicle in November 1969, along with threatening letters and evidence. Some of the others were able to be decoded when they were received, but this cryptogram was particularly difficult. The eventual code breakers are David Orincheck from the US, Sam Blake from Australia, and Jarl Van Eyck of Belgium, and they used a decryption software to break the cipher. Now, Orinchek has actually posted a YouTube video explaining how it was decoded and why it took so long. Some of the reasons included the Zodiac Killer's not great spelling and apparently misplaced characters in his own code that actually messed up the cipher itself. The FBI confirmed that the cipher was correct this past Friday, and it reads as follows. I hope you are having lots of fun in trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show, which brings up a point about me. I am not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me the paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me where everyone else has nothing when they reach paradise, so they are afraid of death. I am not afraid because I know that my new life, an easy one in paradise, death. Oh, okay. That was all in like one set run-on sentence, so I was trying to read it as it was written. Um, And the line about the TV show refers to an October 1969 incident where someone posing as the Zodiac Killer called into a San Francisco morning show to speak to lawyer Marvin Belly. Now, honestly, really the whole big deal about this, I think, isn't exactly about the message itself. The message doesn't really tell us much, but I really think that the hard work of Orinchek, Blake, and Van Eyck really deserve to be acknowledged because this was definitely a time-consuming and extremely difficult task that they undertook. And honestly, it's just something really excited. Something that was unsolved for so long, people had kind of forgotten about, was finally solved. So I think it's just really a great testament to their hard work. So normally I don't do really any kind of like quote-unquote ad roles in this podcast, but I just wanted to take a brief second to remind you guys that we do sell merch for the podcast. If you're interested, you can go to frumiusreads.com forward slash shop and check out the t-shirts that we have there. There's some really cool designs with our original logos the I Like My Women with a Little Mayhem and Murder that has the owl on the branch, and then the gravestone logo that says feminism, women can be murderers too. You can find those printed on these amazing t-shirts 
for $15 and we have sizes from extra small to double XL. If you're looking for a great gift this season for anybody who may like the podcast or be interested in true crime, definitely check those out. All the proceeds go to kind of helping with the behind the scenes stuff and really help get the word out about the podcast as well. You can also check out the podcast on Patreon, um, going to the A Murderous Affair Patreon page and become a patron where you'll get a bunch of cool behind the scenes stuff, get to vote in polls and help decide what murderesses we cover here. And like I said before, just anything really helps out. And I definitely really appreciate all your guys' time. And thank you again for listening. And now let's get to our murderess of the week, Michelle Anderson. Michelle Anderson was born in 1978 and graduated from the Cedar Crest High School in 1997. She was on cross country and in the art club. A classmate of hers, Jennifer Chandler, describes her as a quote, sweet artistic girl but pretty unpopular. Michelle would talk about her home life at times and she made it out to be pretty bad. She would say that her dad hit her and her mom was mean to her. According to Michelle, the best thing about her family was her older brother, Scott, who was her hero. Now, Jennifer and Michelle reconnected about two years before the murders, where Chandler and her husband met Michelle at her mobile home, where she was living with her boyfriend, Joseph Thomas McEnroe. The couple were described as being, quote, a little weird. Joseph alleged spent the time talking about his spirit guide, getting him through life, and helping him make decisions. The couple were also having financial problems, which was forcing them to move back onto the Anderson's family property. Wayne and Judy owned their own house, and they owned an adjacent property, which was used as a mobile home park. And it didn't seem like Anderson and Joseph were excited at all about having to move onto her family's property. Anderson and Joseph met on an online dating site. Now, Joseph was living in Glendale, Arizona when they first met, but soon moved to Washington to be with Anderson. According to his mother, in one of the last conversations that they had before they lost touch for the next five years, he was planning on marrying Anderson. He was planning on marrying Anderson and having kids with her within two years. One of the last conversations that they had was actually a screaming argument about his credit because apparently an apartment that he had co-signed for her on that they'd had to break the lease on was ruining his credit. And because of that, he and Michelle weren't able to rent a new place. After that argument, they lost touch and she and the rest of his family weren't able to find him until his arrest. When they first moved into the Spring Glen trailer park, Anderson listed her employment as a night security guard at Nintendo and McEnroe worked at a Target. But soon, Anderson would be unemployed, having lost her job as a night security guard. And money was a huge trigger for their arguments that they would have almost nightly. One of their neighbors, Ryan Westberg, could hear them from his own trailer a few doors down. Once, curious about what they were fighting about, he listened in and heard Anderson screaming about how Joseph had no money and no life. Many of the neighbors in the mobile home, in the mobile park, said that they seemed standoffish. Anderson would fly into rages at the slightest inconvenience, such as a car that was parked slightly in their spot or kids or pets who were in their yard. She would yell and rage for a short period of time but then would soon calm down and apologize for her behavior. Another neighbor is quoted as saying, they said numerous times that they feared for their lives. They felt that they only had each other and could only trust each other and it seemed to be this paranoia about them. Anyone who'd ask, Anderson would say that her parents had a lot of money, but she was a black sheep who didn't receive any, whether it was money or just assistance. So like I said, 
Money was really brought up a lot when it came to these two. And now we get to the murders. On December 24th, Anderson and Joseph packed handguns that they'd bought over the summer and drove the 200 yards from their trailer to the small white house that Anderson's parents, Judy and Wayne, lived in. At the house that night, along with Wayne and Judy, would be Anderson's brother, Scott, Scott's wife, Erica, and their two kids, Olivia and Nathan who were five and three. According to later testimony, Anderson was only planning on killing her family if they didn't show her the, quote, respect she deserved. Apparently, in addition to a rather contentious relationship with her parents, Anderson and her brother's relationship had soured after he'd gotten married to Erica. She was also angry because her brother had borrowed money from her that hadn't been repaid, and her parents were pressuring her to pay rent for the trailer that she was staying in on their property. So the following is a description of what happened that night from the combined confession of Anderson and Joseph. When they arrived, Joseph first went to find Judy in a back room where she was wrapping Christmas gifts. Michelle split off from him and ran into her father, Wayne. She fired at him but apparently missed and the sound of the gun going off brought Judy and Joseph to the front room. This was when Joseph shot Wayne and Judy began screaming. Then Joseph shot, Joseph shot her too and she kept screaming. So he, quote, apologized to her and then shot her again, this time in the head. With Michelle's parents dead, the couple then prepared for Scott and his family to arrive for the Christmas Eve dinner that had been planned. While they waited, they dragged the bodies to an outdoor shed and used blankets and towels to clean up the blood. They also burned this evidence in a fire pit. When Michelle Anderson's brother arrived, she pulled out the gun and shot him at least two times, but as many as four. She also shot at his wife, Erica, who tried to call for help as she jumped over the back of the couch to get away from them. And here is the extremely sad and ridiculous part that just kills me with the absolute incompetence. Apparently, in a 911 call that lasted 10 seconds, screaming and a lot of like muffled sounds could be heard on the phone. So two deputies were dispatched to check on the call and arrived at 5.15 p.m. They left around 5.45 p.m. after having encountered a locked gate and just made a note that said gate was locked, residents not responding. So there was actually police that were sent and instead of like doing, you know, a full check and trying to see what was going on in the residence, they stopped at a locked gate and then just left. Now, according to Michelle, the last thing that Erica did was try to protect her kids. Joseph pulled the phone she dialed 911 on out of her hand and shot her in the head. He then shot the children, Olivia and Nathan. Then, the two just left the house. On Wednesday, the following day, Judy's co-workers stopped by the house after Judy didn't show up to work. Now, Judy was a postal worker, and not showing up for work was something entirely out of character, even if it was on Christmas. The coworker was the one to discover the body and they called the police. Now this threw a wrench into Michelle and Joseph's plans as they were planning to flee to Canada. But because the bodies were so quickly discovered, they were unable to leave. Instead, they returned home and were quickly called in for questioning. It didn't take too long for them to become the first suspects and admit to the murders. Both were arrested on December 26, 2007, two days after the murders were committed. Each were charged were with six counts of first degree murder. Both waived their right to appear in court, 
but as soon as the media ban was lifted, Michelle definitely took advantage and took interviews left and right. She told Como TV that, quote, I need to be executed for everything that I've done. Deciding that I want to die was the most difficult decision I've ever had to make, and I was able to make it without a second thought because I know what I've done and I want to take responsibility for it. She also did a telephone interview where she admitted to fatally shooting the six members of her family and has been trying to admit in court to the slangs, but according to her, her attorneys have told her that she can't. In her interview, she said, quote, I'm a different kind of person. Life in prison is not enough punishment for me. I want the most severe punishment, which would be the death penalty. I want to waive my trial. My lawyers have said that a mitigation package is a requirement and that's also a lie. There are no mitigating factors. I've been evaluated by three doctors and I've been found competent. My lawyers are trying to force me into a life sentence because they're opposed to that. And honestly, that is like the worst possible thing I think someone could ever say. Can you imagine? I took a long time. I decided that it would be best for me if I chose to die instead of serve a life sentence in prison because that's what I feel I deserve. Like, no, you don't you don't get to pick your punishment after you killed six people or at least helped kill six people. That is so absolutely just ridiculous. And I think it's actually a really good kind of way to see into her mindset. It's just a very, I mean, I'm not a psychologist by any way, shape, or form, but it's a very narcissistic thing to where you murdered six people. Two of them were kids, and yet you somehow think that you get to choose what your punishment will be that is so ridiculous just really honestly i feel like that is a very narcissistic way to behave it shows there's like a lack of remorse it shows michelle anderson really does not care about what she actually did and instead she has decided that her punishment for the crime that she committed should be this thing and she's mad because she's not getting it. Of course you're not going to get the punishment you want when you commit a crime this horrendous. And in my opinion, I feel like the fact that she wants the death penalty so bad, the fact that she wants to be on death row and, you know, undergo that means that they should really do their best to just get her life in prison with no chance at the death penalty. Because if that's the way she really wants to go, that's what she is trying to do is kind of get like a shortened sentence and not have to spend the rest of her life in prison, that it only really makes sense, at least to me, to give her the exact opposite of that, to make sure that she does spend the rest of her life in prison and doesn't get to, you know, cut her sentence short by going for the death penalty and being on death row. Also, there's a sort of infamy that comes with women on death row, you know, like they tend to be the ones to get on the Netflix series, they tend to be the ones who get interviewed the most, and I feel like if there's even a slightest chance, given about how she already went and tried to grab the media's attention, if there's even a slight chance that's something that she would want, I really don't think that she should get an opportunity to do that. But that's just my overall opinion. I just, when I read that interview and I saw that she said she decided that she deserved to go to 
or to have the death penalty because she didn't deserve to live. It's like, you don't get to decide that. You don't have any claim to that. You committed this horrendous crime, and honestly, you deserve life in prison, especially if it seems like that's not what you want. So, anyway, that those were just my thoughts that I wanted to share on that, and we can get back to the rest of the story now. Now, apparently, she went through multiple legal teams during this trial, and according to one of her new lawyers, said that Anderson no longer wants the death penalty. In fact, quote, now that the prosecutor has decided to seek the death penalty, Miss Anderson and her defense team will fight to save her life. And apparently no trial date has been set. The last that anyone has kind of heard is that at a hearing in King County Superior Court, prosecutors officially served notice of their intent to seek the death penalty, and neither Michelle Anderson or Joseph McEnroe attended the hearing on advice from their attorneys. And that's the last I can find out. So from what it sounds like, even though this murder occurred in 2007, both are still awaiting for their trials. Although they did confess to the murders, so I think that's probably a big factor as to why this is taking such a long time. I don't know. I'm not a legal person. I don't know the exact details, but to me that seems like a good theory as to why they haven't been actually put on trial yet. Is They've already committed the murders and admitted to that and given a detailed testimony. So they have been charged with that many murders and aren't trying to fight their guilty plea. So it doesn't seem like there's a big rush, especially if their options are either the death penalty or life in prison. But anyway, that is the Carnation Massacre that occurred on December 24th, 2007. I hope you guys, as always, enjoyed this episode and are enjoying the holiday season for those of you who celebrate the holidays around this time. I would love to know what you think, so please feel free to reach out to me at Frumious Reads. That's F-R-U-M-I-O-U-S-R-E-A-D-S. And I am on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook, basically all social media as Frumious Reads. You could also keep up with the podcast by subscribing to it or following it on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, Podbreed, Google Play, anywhere that you listen to podcasts, we are there. You could also check out the podcast on its very own homepage at frumiusreads.com forward slash a-murderous-affair. This is where I post all the transcripts of our episodes and also just kind of little updates in between official episode releases. Let me know if there was anything I missed in this episode or any details that I forgot to cover, but that's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll talk to you guys next week. Stay spooky, friends. Goodbye.